play another round of the play another round of the play another round of the Rio Rag. What are we going to do with the rest of the time? We have all these architects that are just going to sit there drawing boxes. We're going to, we've got a surplus of boxes now. <laughs> so, uh, so I'm Richard, and uh, this is Tech from the Top, and here's Andy. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Deck from the Top. Um, we got a special guest with us today, who uh, we've known for quite a few years. Rich, um, yeah, in a salubrious um, gatherings of like-minded folk, right? That's right, that's right. And we're talking about our uh, our Microsoft Regional Director community. Um, and so, everybody, um, we've got our special guest, uh, Steve Thayer, the legend, the uh, the entrepreneur the uh what else can we say about steve that aussie uh, aussie yeah and uh go for it steve say hello to the audience is he stony faced or is he crushed <laughs> <laughs> oh no that's brilliant oh he's back he's oh back. Come, on, teams. come on yeah get the hamster wheel moving <laughs> i did crash sorry about that <laughs> okay should we let's let, let's not let this degrade into uh into our team's <laughs> hatred episode, same as the last one. So I didn't hear any of that, but I assume you I assume you gave me a glowing introduction. Thank you. <laughs> we did. Um, thank you, thank you, thank did. you. I, I even called you a legend. <laughs> legend in his own mind. Yeah. Well, Andy called you a beer drinking legend, but um, no. <laughs> uh, was that? Aussie, oh, that was in my head. Oh, sorry, words. an Aussie legend. That's it. An Aussie legend. Uh, I added the beer drinking. Thing. These, uh, these cultural stereotypes we have to uphold. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, Steve, why don't you tell us, tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So I started in the IT industry in 1990 as a as a mainframe programmer. Uh, back in the days when mainframes were still a thing. I think they're still a thing, but just everybody ignores them. Um, <laughs> very realised, quickly realised that I found sitting in front of a PC programming, uh, did that for three and a half years, found it boring, and then switched over to basically, you know, systems administration. And uh, back then it was like, you know, a land manager, land manager 2.2, Novell Netware 3, uh, and then kind of worked my way up, um, you know, to be an infrastructure architect, operations manager, and then about 12 years ago, I started a company called DevOps Group with my business partner, James, and we kind of grew that as a sort of DevOps and cloud company to about 80 employees, had, you know, pretty good turnover. And then at the end of 2021, we were acquired by a um, big American company. And then I left to sort of semi-retirement about a year later. Wow, what a roller coaster ride. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And, 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 and how is retirement? I, I, I'm sure it's not the same as my, my dad's version of retirement. Go on, Steve, tell us what you're doing now. No, I, I, I read a really good, I read a really good, um, uh, um, well, that's no, a white paper, research paper that basically said that, uh, if you're looking at longevity and having a happy retirement, that, uh, being, um, connected to your community is as high a risk factor 
as smoking, obesity and alcohol consumption, uh, which I thought was absolutely fascinating because I'm, I'm working really hard. Well, I don't smoke, but I'm certainly working on the obesity and the alcohol consumption. But uh, so, yeah, no, these days I do a lot of community volunteering work for St. John. So I do, I do both event first aid and uh, I do training for them as well. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really enjoying doing something completely different that is not tech related really at all. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's an opportunity to do all of those things that you always thought about. Oh, you know, what, wouldn't it be great if I could do more time doing this? You know, whether it's, you know, uh, archery as a hobby or, you know, uh, cycling, all sorts of good stuff. So yeah, it's good. I enjoy it. <laughs> I highly recommend. Amazing. Can't, can't wait, can't wait myself. For now though, um, this, this all came, this show came about because, uh, I was, I was on LinkedIn and, um, Steve does a lot of profound posts, which I immediately agree with. And they're always all about Microsoft's decisions one way or another, or generally like one of the big cloud vendors. And it was just after all of this messaging from the likes of Microsoft, AWS, Vodafone and others, um, about, um, what what they can what they consider value and the infrastructure that they've built up in terms of people over years and years and years of of just just reducing this to ashes within a really really short space of time hence the uh hence the name of the show which is the great cloud cull and so steve yeah i just want to take you back because i think they this comment started after the uh it wasn't actually related to Microsoft, but we ended up talking about Microsoft after that. Um but it was related to that decision by Vodafone. Um be great to just get your thoughts and recap on that. I'm honestly trying to uh, I'm honestly trying to remember which <laughs> which one of my which which one of my rants that it uh, that it was. But I mean I think I think it's really interesting. The the we're coming out of a time, like since 2008, where interest rates have been like incredibly low for, an, for a very long period of time. So there's just been a lot of money sloshing around, you know, and when money is cheap, bad ideas get executed and suddenly now interest rates, at least, you know, like mortgage interest rates in the UK or the base rates like five and a half percent. Suddenly the money's not there anymore. And anything that was a sort of marginal, let's try this because it's some manager's pet hobby or whatever. Suddenly, you know, the bean counters are looking at it and, and a lot of stuff just gets killed. Um, so, like, I don't necessarily I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing you know we talk about these seven year historically there's like seven year business cycles and you expand when the money is cheap and then there's some kind of shock to the system there's a downturn and a lot of employees get culled and a lot of um a lot of um you know projects get killed and a lot of companies die but i think you know what you're also talking about is it always seems to land on the employees, you know, we are going to do that. Jack Welch, uh, very famously at GE, would manipulate the numbers by buying companies and dumping employees and closing factories. And it's like, 
Yeah, but you were the people that made all these dumb decisions. You were the people that started all these bad projects. You were the people that, that you know, let this money be wasted. But it's not you who pays the price. It's generally the, you know, the employees. Um, so, like, I'm kind of like, sometimes I think it's part of creative destruction, but I also think there is a, there is an illness in many of the large tech firms around the egos of the management and they're not being held accountable for making bad choices. Segue into what do you guys think about that in the context of uh, Microsoft in particular? Yeah, so we we see these cycles all the time, and uh, it it is just as you say. I, at times, money's cheap, and they invest um, in the most wild and um, obviously flawed way possible and almost to chase the competition or to because they have to be in a sector and um being in a sector (laughs) when you're an enormous company like the ones mentioned um just means marketing by and large uh and building something that's effectively a piece of scaffolding that's only really intended you to hold a flag to to drape a sign off the edge of to be a billboard piece of architecture uh, with no implicit value itself but just like if Microsoft decided they suddenly had to be all over the place uh, for the upcoming Olympics or or whatever and decided to just scaffold a whole bunch around the stadiums and put Microsoft logos around the edges we've even seen things like that we've seen We've seen Microsoft just randomly sponsoring London Paddington Railway Station for bizarre reasons. It just all of a sudden there was just, <laughs> just Microsoft yep. signs everywhere. Um, okay, why? <laughs> because they like trains. I don't know. Someone have a, a newborn child or something wanted to get into Thomas the Tank Engine, something like that. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure there was much thinking behind it. But it, beyond the the veneer which which is you know, the service level which is the marketing spend that's obvious behind the scenes there's like microsoft have quite regularly said I, I need to be in the big data space or something like that and and so they'll invest into either a partnership or a competing product um that lasts a few years until someone gets bored of it or the money becomes expensive and then gets killed off um and in the meanwhile like the the waves that that causes disruption and the um the damage it causes to the ecosystem of actually progressive companies who want to do things that so just get swallowed up or get trampled all over it's monumental and it it holds back the the whole sector in my opinion and stops like real innovation from thriving because you know nothing nothing really is as soul destroying as having a innovative cutting edge product that suits customer needs and then nobody buying it just because the established player in the market comes out with something that's called the Microsoft big data platform and then everyone decides to use that instead because hey it's Microsoft so it's safe bet right and uh it's not really a safe bet and none of these big players are safe bets because they can them with absolute regularity. The only safe bet is that there's going to be a migration dock on Microsoft Learn every couple of years saying this is where you need to go to next. That's the only safe yeah. bet there is for those guys. I think it's interesting that you 
I, like uh, I remember, you know, one of the previous pod, uh, podcasts you guys were talking about, you know, enterprise architects and stuff, and and you know, and, and quite rightly saying that enterprise architects need to code, even if it's if it's infrastructure as code. But you know, we often used to talk about you know Gartner texture. You know, somebody's read the latest white paper from Gartner, and they come into the thing is you know inspired with this new architecture or idea or, or thing. But I think that happens with vendors as well in the context of Gartner comes out with a magic quadrant on some particular technology area and says, you have to have these 14 features in your piece of software, CRM to a big data platform in order to be, you know, seriously considered. And you get marked down if you don't have it. And I remember seeing this particularly in the um, application performance management, the APM space. So suddenly you've got, 12 of the 14 things and the company will quickly go out and try and buy or acquire or build something to put in the other 214 because they know that being in that top right leaders quadrant of, of, of the Gartner Magic quadrant is worth a lot of money. And I think we see that in you know vendors like Microsoft. They'll come out with a product because, oh, well, somebody's drawn a diagram of this is what the features in the space and we're missing this element and it's costing us. But it doesn't actually talk about the quality of, you know, you could have made a really good product if you just stayed doing that other thing that your existing thing did and made that better, faster, cheaper, you know. But no, you've got to shoehorn in something else that's some flaky third party integration or acquisition. And yeah, I, you see it. I do completely agree. See it all the time. Richard, you <laughs> Oh my God, please. Could I respond to that with an example? Right. Yeah. Just, just to make the, the last three years not seem as painful as it actually was. Um, but this, the, what you've mentioned for me is literally the primary roadmap for purview. Um, I kind of, I kind of look back at the early versions of, um, Azure Data Catalog, which was released, I think around about 2015. And, um, you know, it was, it wasn't feature rich at all. It was quite mediocre. Um, very, very few people were using it. And then there was a whole lot of hype over all of the internal projects. And there were, you know, there were probably because this is, you know, one of the things that you tend to find when you speak to product teams, that there are lots of teams and individuals in large vendors that are all doing the same thing, but don't talk to each other. So whichever prop, product actually sees the light of day it's like a genetic algorithm you know that you know that maybe 10 will start but one will one will finish in in smaller companies you don't have that luxury right you have to have you have to have proper planning right everything that you do matters so just just following what you said through the um through the development of purview it happened in exactly this way um, you had the genesis of Data Catalog 1, um, a lot of hype over the release of Data Catalog 2. And then um, there was a span of years in between where it wasn't released, even though there were, you know, obviously you don't stop working on a on a product like that because you've got competitors which are taking like eating market share like Calibra and Elation daily and have built really, really strong brands over this. And then when... When it comes and everybody gets really excited over V2 and hear all the features and all the rest of it, then all of a sudden there's an acquisition that's announced, right? And then there's another year spent on the integration with the acquisition. And then there's a huge rush to market at the end of it. And the whole 
the product that ends up being released is totally mediocre. So with with all this train of hype and all the noise on the run up to it, everybody looks at this straight away and goes, is that it? And then the real development happens a year on, like or 18 months on, but everybody's bored with the whole story up to that point and it's just moved on to something else. And if I look at Purview now, it's not feature complete, but it's not actually a bad product, but it's nowhere near as bad as it was when it was first released. But then you've got a whole load of people that have got that memory from all of the that train of hype where they were literally waiting for it. They saw the they saw the um, the acquisition of that that company, Blue Talon, which was um, uh, which was resp- uh, uh, which was a data governance company. And they thought that they were going to end up with something much better on day one. Okay? But it, but it was just a holding position. And the thing that frustrates me is this is the largest software company in the world. Right. I mean, surely they can do better than that. Right. I know that if I told Andy to write a data governance solution, I think I did back in 2014. And it was it was actually better than the <laughs> that was released on day one. Um, it was pretty good. It had a graph database behind it. It invented some pretty interesting lineage approaches. But then the reason we stopped doing it was because Microsoft came out with a, a catalog offering that was out of the box and again, sucked the world to live made the whole market decide not to spend any money. Not not that they were going to spend money on Microsoft, just like, well, we've got to stop buying that and start looking at this because this might be good. It's not good. Let's carry on watching this. And by the time, they, they never come back to you. So they steal the market immediately like that. I mean, they, they, but, they, anybody, anybody who's been around for a long time, you know, you might have heard of the thing called, like, the, I think it's the, the Osborne effect, where, you know, you announce that the the next version of your computer is going to be, you know, faster, better and, and amazing and it's going to be out in three months' time. And then so everybody got, holds off on buying the version one, but suddenly version two is not out for another 18 months and you've run out of cash and you've gone out of business, even though, you know, version two was actually a really good product, but there's no point, you've run out of cash. And I think, you know, coming back to what we started this around the cloud cull and the way you know, entire teams and projects inside these big tech companies can seem to vanish overnight. I mean, sometimes sometimes this is a deliberate, you know, they announce it, as you said, they announce it because they're trying to kill the, kill the opposition. You know, we don't want this startup to get a foothold in the market. We'll announce that it's going to be here in six months. It's going to be awesome and it'll be built into your enterprise agreement. We'll give you great discounts. So, Everybody goes, oh, no worries. I'll just, I'll, I'll wait six months and then maybe it drags on. But in the meantime, startups not getting any cash because they can't sell any, anything. So they're hemorrhaging money and their investors will only go so far. And then you release the product, you know, or the big vendor releases their version of it. It's not as great as what everybody wanted. So that doesn't get any traction. So the bean counters inside the big tech firm will keep funding it for another 12 or 18 months. And they, then they go, well, nobody's really buying this, you know. So, uh, look, you know, and for very justifiable reasons, they exist to invest money to make money and they're not going to keep chasing a, a dead horse. And then they kind of go, uh, well, we'll just can it. So suddenly you see a whole bunch of, you know, announcements on LinkedIn that the product's being cancelled and everybody pops up on your on your feed saying, I've been made redundant and now I'm looking for jobs. Anybody want an expert in, you know, data catalogs or management or whatever that, you know, the product was. And so 
they've killed the innovative startup, but then they've actually killed the the the, the people in the in-house team as well, you know, figuratively speaking. And then, like, so it's the people who, in both scenarios, do you know what I mean? It's the people who end up getting hurt, and the customers end up getting hurt because they've waited for something that they could have been now 18 months, um, you know, down the road of implementing it. And I, I don't know, I, I, maybe because I've been in the industry for so long now, but, you know, there are genuinely crap products, but most of the products are there or thereabouts. And some are harder to implement, some are easier to implement, some have a, a better integration with that thing that you really care about. But I wish everybody, no evaluation of enterprise software should last longer than 10 days. You should take it, you should download it from the vendor. If they won't give you a version of download, of, to download it and install it, you just, you they're out of the evaluation, sort of. Then you install it. And if it's really hard to install, then it's out of the evaluation. And then you then you play with it for 10 days. And if it's good or good enough, you pick the one you like the most and you move on. And then you get on with doing the hard graft of actually implementing it. You know, I just sometimes think people spend so long trying to pick the best platform. But if you're any good at your job, you can make the thing work. And making it work now is hell of a lot more valuable to your business than making it work in 18 months time. Steve, I think I think. Um... Without two to three years of product council meetings, you've just killed enterprise architecture. <laughs> well, I think that's an ongoing thread of, uh, of this entire podcast, isn't it? So. <laughs> oh, what are we going to do with the rest of the time? We have all these architects that are just going to sit there drawing boxes. We're going to, we've got a surplus of boxes now. <laughs> But and we don't digress again. <laughs> a, a, a slight digression. Um, uh, Adam Jacob, who invented, uh, was one of the you know the founders of um, of Chef. Um, you know, he's just released his new platform system initiative, trying to push you know like a, a a second wave of DevOps tools, and it's kind of a an infrastructure prototyping type. You know, well, it's an abstraction layer, really. And it is that kind of, you know, you drag and drop the stuff onto the page and you connect it and it generates all the, the code needed to deploy that into, you know, AWS or Azure or, you know, Google or wherever. And it's just kind of like, I feel like I've, I feel like I'm back with this sort of 3GL and 4GL code gen tools that we used to have that were the same thing. That were all about dragging and dropping and linking. And it was almost like, you know, any even an architect can code now because you're just generating code using a, an, a you know, a Visio style, you know, GUI to draw pictures and then it will generate the code out of the back end. And I just thought, oh my God, I've gone back 30 years. But yeah. So, <clears throat> so I guess. I'm going to I'm going to drill into this. I'm going to drill into this Microsoft thing because I want to I want to take advantage. I want to maximize our time um, with you being here so that we can get as much um, of the obnoxious part of the debate in. Um, So one of the things which really annoyed me was how I feel like. um, So I think. I think in some in some areas this can feel really really indiscriminate and I know that um with some of the 
some of the people that I know in Microsoft UK um, were there for 10 years or so um, and they were brilliant at their job and they were just let go. And um, that's not a recoverable state, um, number one, because of the way that this was done, I feel. Um, so, you know, having having people who are so close to you and are brought into the message and the vision and, you know, and genuinely believe every single day that people should be using Azure, they should, you know, um, to just <clears throat> from one minute to the next, not, I want to say not, not really, not really care because it's, it was like a, um, but I feel like, I feel like there wasn't enough care given around people um, for this. And maybe because maybe because at the scale this is done at, you can never do something like that. I don't know um, with companies like the size of Microsoft or AWS or Google. Um, but I just I feel like I feel like with a lot of large companies, they when times are good, they'll they'll talk about being investors in people. They'll talk about all the things that that matter within the people <laughs> agenda. People. I've, I've even heard that phrase for years now, but yeah, yeah. Go carry on, sorry. Yeah, so I just, I guess, I guess my point is that um, you know when things when things turn south, um, you know that whole unfeeling, caring side, um, of which Microsoft was, I feel like was a, a very caring company during. Um, during Satya's uh, tenure, um, it just evaporated overnight. And I think that's the so so so. First of all, you know, for those of us who've been around, the Microsoft to today compared to the stack ranking, culling people every year on some completely arbitrary ranking of the staff, you know, which was just atrocious. So I think you're right. Say it's a it's a better place than what it was. But, I mean, like, when you're talking hundreds of thousands of people, you know, I mean, I've had to make redundant people redundant even in my little business of, of, of 80 people. But when you're talking 100,000 people, it's kind of like, I think the strategic process is, right, well, which which projects are we going to kill? So that's your big top line. We're going to kill this project or this product line because it's not economic for us. Okay, so that gets rid of you. Uh, you know, of a tranche of money and investment and unfortunately the people who go along with it. And then you have, ah, well, I guess we should get rid of, let's get rid of 10% of the people in marketing and 10% of people in in finance and, you know, 7% of the people in HR or 25% of the people in HR because we're not going to be recruiting as much. And they're just, I think, often very arbitrary percentages applied to a business unit with the thing of, well, we've got to share the pain. We'll share the pain out to everybody. So if you're, you know, of marketing or in DevRel or something like that, it can feel really arbitrary. It's got nothing to do with you or the performance of your division. It's just, well, we couldn't make as much saving as we wanted to by culling the products and the projects we never should have started in the first place. And that's, we'll come back to that. Uh, and then we, we didn't make, we can't save enough there. So we're going to do a broad brush and make share the pain across the entire business. 
And then, yeah, and then it is. It is completely arbitrary. You, you know, you've been getting, you know, five out of fives on your annual evaluation. You've been doing great inroads into community or sales or product or whatever it may be. And then, no, we've got to get rid of 10 people. And then it's kind of like, well, you know, first in, last, you know, last out or, you know, you know vice versa. And, and, you know, or sometimes it's, you know, they let the old people, well, the, sorry, I'm not saying they consciously get let, let let the older staff go because that would be against the law, and I'm not consciously saying they get rid of the younger staff because that would also be against employment law in the UK. But you know, draw your own conclusions sometimes. But yeah, it is it is arbitrary, and I just wish that I just wish that they would you know stop wasting money on vanity projects that should never have been started in product sectors that they shouldn't have ever gone into and then they would never have to do this kind of or at least not to the extent that they have to yeah that that reminds me of your post that you put up on on uh, linkedin about vodafone and uh, one of the points that that stood out was you're obviously ranting about eleven thousand staff who uh, got let go and quite rightly sort of standing up for them because they've you know the the bosses who are left behind, they they don't have to bear the the brunt of that. Um, you mentioned that well, you, you sort of postulated a whole bunch of questions about you know um, were they were the staff responsible for this mistake that mistake of of the management and exec, and one of them you, you said was about were they responsible for uh, the overpaid acquisitions that were driven by senior leadership hubris rather than business strategy, and that you know needing to feel like the business is in a sector because otherwise, you know, maybe somebody in that sector is competing with you and, oh, no, no one compete with the big mighty. Um, and then overpaying and going into it without reasoning it out, I think speaks very, very well to, to that kind of vanity that you mentioned. And I thought maybe you could just elaborate on, on that a little bit around around vanity of, of companies and of execs. Because like, it's definitely yeah. uh, it's definitely something that you can see really obviously across the sector. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I would, I would say it's always interestingly Microsoft that 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 Satcher is almost a little bit of an anomaly in a sense of he's a CEO who has built a reputation on almost on culture and execution, you know, turning Microsoft around executing on the cloud strategy very well. But that's actually rare. You know, when you look at these these sort of, you know, the so-called superstar CEOs and stuff like that, a lot of them, they get this reputation because they came in and they cut a whole bunch of costs and then they organized a mega merger and blah, 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 and eventually, you know, managed to pump up the share price and then five years later they, they leave and the deal that they did quietly gets unwound by, you know, the next thing. And I mean, and in Vodafone's case, you can see they've been unwinding a number of mergers in, in, in Southeast Asia and, you know, potentially even some, some in Europe. So this is rooted in the mythology that of that superstar CEO. And ultimately, if you think that at the top of the thing that you are this strategic genius who have this has this vision and the reality is is that number of 
decisions you actually get to make is often vanishingly small, you know, because the market and the competition and the customer needs often push you in various directions. But, you know, people want to come in and have this impact and the way to get headlines and be seen as a mover and shaker is often by, you know, mergers and acquisitions. It gets headlines. It can shake up the share price, blah, blah, blah. Now, you know, read the Harvard Business Review. You know, it will tell you time and time again that very almost the best way to destroy shareholder value in the long term is to do these mergers and acquisitions. And particularly in an overheated market where everybody's competing to, you know, buy that asset and you end up overpaying, um, you know, the, the number of cases of where um, you just got to look at, you know, HP with autonomy, but that's probably right on the borderline, you know, criminal end of the market. But, you know, when three years later they, they bought something for 30 million, 30 billion or something and they write 10 billion of the cost down because it didn't work out. But yeah, it, we don't, we don't pay CEOs what they're worth because in reality they're not worth that much more than the average employee. I mean, are they worth 300 times more than, than the average employee salary? No, they're not. They're still human beings. They've got very fallible viewpoints. You know, some of them build great teams and are great leaders. A lot of them are just borderline sociopaths. You just, you know, it's so rooted in that thing of I want to be a thing and I'm going to make this acquisition because that's how I make my my mark on the industry and set myself up for the next job or the next role. You can't disassemble those things. You, that makes you sense. just, yeah, absolutely, and and you just picked the words right out of my mouth as to how I describe myself as well or what I aspire to be. Um, <laughs> no, actually. Uh, Actually, uh, uh, Andy and I played CEO ping pong for years. Um, it's it's landed in my lap because um, because uh, Andy has too many jovial bones in his body. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, but but ultimately, like, I mean, how, how many years has Elasticlab been around now in various different incarnations? And you guys have pivoted and stuff. But ultimately, you I think. Mean, you know, you're still focused on customers. You're still focused on execution. You want to do good work. You want to build your reputation because, hey, we want to work with these guys because they're smart and they've got, they employ great people and they've got great ideas and they're cost effective. And more than anything, you get shit done. We'll have some shit done. Um, there goes the explicit label again. Um, <laughs> I was so careful. I was so. Oh, sorry, God, we I'm can glad that out. We can beat that out. <laughs> no, no, Fucking not a chance. Hell. This is authentic. Fix it, oh, fix here we it go. It's going to be everybody other than me this this week. But you know, but you know, there's not enough. I mean, you know, there's not enough people in the business who are just focused on getting stuff done. You know, make your reputation of being the person who gets stuff done, but not get stuff done. If you get stuff done and nobody on your project team wants to ever work with you again, then you've destroyed the value, even though you might have achieved that milestone for the project. You want to be that manager who gets stuff done, achieves a great outcome, and everybody on your team wants to work, well, what, what project are we working on now? You know, because they want to stay working with you because you've created a really generative and positive 
you know, psychologically safe, you know, whatever working environment. And they're just, but unfortunately, that's not what's rewarded in most companies these days. Yeah, I think, I think actually, um, the counterpoint to that is that if, if some of the companies that, that I've, that we've worked for over the years actually have some success, they, they don't know what to do with it. They're so geared up to having everything fail that um, they can't really plan next steps on it. And I think one of the problems that we've had is that we've been so effective around um, data and AI that we've just we've come in on these like one and two week hack sprints and um, companies have seen value immediately and they don't know how to follow it up, you know, because anybody else would take months or years to do the same thing. You know, and they'd be struggling and they'd pull in all the internal people and things that they think are incredibly complicated, right? Just because we're like a normal set of good devs who are really, really passionate about what we do, we just write good software really quickly, you know, and they just don't know, they don't know how, what to do with that. It is, I mean, there was a, there was a, 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 still out there on the internet somewhere, but it was the, the parable of the two programmers and it was, you know, one person kind of thought it was really, you know, hard and then the project went on and la, 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 and got rewarded because obviously it was a very hard project. And the other person sort of goofed around for six days and on the seventh day, you know, brrr, you know, wrote, wrote the pro, wrote the project and they, oh, well, it, you've, you've wasted all this time. You could have done it in one day. You know, it was clearly, an, you know, easier than we thought it was and gets fired. And you kind of go, no, it's because you spent six days thinking about the problem space. And mulling it around in your head, you didn't rush in um, and just, you know, randomly start doing stuff. And, and you know, I, I think that sometimes there is that you deliver something way quicker than people think and they kind of go, oh, well, yeah, obviously it couldn't have been that hard or, you know, yeah, it's not really. If you did it that quickly, it's not worth anything. If we didn't pay $10 million and it didn't take 18 months, you know, and it wasn't a huge outsourced vendor with a massive team in in some low cost location. You know, it, it clearly wasn't worth anything. And then, yeah, you're right. They don't know what to do with it because you you delivered it too quickly. Yeah. You're just selling me on the idea of doing more project management stuff that doesn't actually <laughs> result in anything. But everyone looks busy, so I think I might start doing that now. Just get loads of people to sit around and. You know, fill out backlogs. I, I've been going through this recently with um, our products, and they are broadly really well. Um, like the backlog is relatively minimal in terms of, of like just being to point and actually just deliver that, deliver that, deliver that, and we're good. It doesn't go down to the end detail because I trust the teams to understand and own the delivery themselves, um, and they do a fantastic job. But um, just had a little series of hacks um, around the sides of it and you know, unbelievably rapid results from these hacks when people have come through and and um, they've been available for a week, just a week. Just like, like I mentioned, a project's just been delayed by a week. So we got like five people and they're going to sit around doing nothing. But come on, come on, my team and do something for a week. And they just come in, hit the ground running, absolutely smashed something out. And then I kind of at the end of that, I'm really proud of what they've achieved, but then I have to think, well, how do I build this into the backlog because they weren't working off the core backlog? And I have to like slow down, do the slow time thing and try and 
integrate that with the core idea of, of, of the product. And I'm very hesitant to do that because it feels like you, you've just finished a sprint and, you know, you've got your gold medal hanging around your neck and the crowd's cheering you. And then the next thing you immediately do is not even walk the marathon. It's just like, it's just going sit down on the ground and just pick out little bits of daisies, make a daisy yeah. chain or something. It kind of, it kind of feels like that's what you do next, but there's not a huge amount of value in that. Like the rapidity that value can be brought around a problem and solving that problem is phenomenal to uphold. But then trying to work on it and build it into something which is longer term, um, it, uh, <laughs> it doesn't really have a huge amount of value and there's a lot of time involved in doing it. Um, so it's definitely a, an interesting problem in the sector. I, I totally get your point there where it's like, yeah, sitting around and planning it, not really doing the work, but planning it is visibly seen as, as the valuable part. We've kind of done that opposite with these hacks. Uh, and that does mean that you finish with a, with a successful result very quickly. And then the rest of the time you just sat around going, hmm, hmm. But filling some DevOps board to document what we did, <laughs> which, which feels a bit backwards. I mean, I think... I think, you know, I think we can pivot from that actually, you know, going back to the original topic of the great Carl is I think that, okay, how do I phrase this? I think that developer productivity in large organizations, particularly some of the large financial services organizations that I work in, has been largely stagnant for a very long time, which is insane when you consider, you know, test-driven development, continuous integration, you know, all of the DevOps tools, all of the advances in IDEs and, you know, IntelliType and blah, 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 you know, that has, you should be incredibly more productive. But at the same time, we have so many frameworks now and, and well, again, 90% of stuff is you'd be pulling in from open source. Again, you would think that it would be making it more productive, but I don't get a sense that, end to end it's become any more productive um and maybe the individual developers have but even when you look at individual developers the variance and i'm not talking between a superstar developer you know a 10x developer or whatever i'm just talking somebody who's really good really competent but is leveraging all of the technology at their disposal versus somebody who's kind of stuck in a very mechanistic manual way of doing their software development. The productivity gulf there is huge, but it just doesn't seem to be leveling out across the industry in a way that I think everybody had hoped. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I agree. Um, I also think there's something to be said for the fact that the way that enterprises structure themselves is not conducive to innovation. So yeah. I know, so Andy's, Andy's built some brilliant software products. If I translate those to our more um, enterprise customers, um, he may have had six weeks um, dicking around back and forth, trying to set up an AAD account, um, then um, getting getting permissions based on custom roles, which are never right in Azure subscriptions, having constraints over what he can build because, uh, you know, some services may violate Azure policy. So then having to go through security to get exceptions. There's just like 
everything is geared up to make you not be innovative in large <laughs> organisations. And my, my, so just quickly, my, my favourite one, I won't name the organisation, but the the IT security people wanted to implement a zero trust model for their private cloud on premise, so they pushed that through. Uh, so now when you the applications need to communicate, you basically have to specify, the developers have to specify every port and every protocol and endpoint. And there's currently a 12-week lead time on making firewall changes. Oh, my God. That, that so is like, such okay, a travesty. So, you know, from the day you sign, you sign the change request and you get it approved, it's 12 weeks. So that, you know, like, and it's just ridiculous, you know, but the people on the left-hand side are saying, we're doing industry best practice, zero, you know, zero trust deployment, we're, we're amazing, it's super secure, blah, blah, blah. And they've imposed this 12-week tax because nobody thought to hire three more, you know, network engineers to make the firewall changes or make it infrastructure as code so that, you know, that you could deploy the package and the package itself would uh, make the firewall rule changes as part of the deployment and blah, 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 blah. You know, it's because nobody, nobody sees it through end to end. Nobody thinks it through that way. Yeah, it's, um, you get companies who invent clouds and then they, they come up with tools that, that let you write web apps or mobile apps or whatever, enterprise apps in, in the cloud. And then every enterprise out there decides that, that they know better somehow. So then they force the people who made the clouds to invent new abstractions that look a lot like the old abstractions. So like new networking type things inside the cloud, which already had networks, but they are abstracted for ease. But they bring them back and then they bring all their old tools to bear and their own approaches to looking after them. And they weren't fit for purpose on prem and they're not fit for purpose in the cloud. And they bring their own their own thought process to it, their their, their old approach to managing risk and Actually, all they're doing is bringing new risk. Uh, you know, so you're deploying something out and then all of a sudden you just get an error message and you've been testing it a hundred times and you're like, why do I, why do I get this error message when I first time I deploy it? Like immediately, I, first time I deploy it to my customer's tenant, what's, what's the error? And it's like, yeah, you just can't deploy this, this particular thing. It just doesn't let you. It just gives you often a very daft error, just like a forbidden error or something. You're like, what, what, what does that mean? And, um, it just so happens that somebody in enterprise ABC decided that they knew better than Microsoft about what an enterprise grade app was and decided we're going to turn off that whole feature set. Um, and work to some relatively inappropriate security levels. Everyone uh, working towards high security levels is probably a reasonable thing, right? Secure code and things like that. But there's a, there's a bar based on the point of your application. If you're writing an intranet, app lets you share pictures of your your cats and kittens with your colleagues um probably don't need to write to the same level of security as if you're writing a banking app or something that looks after military installations on the front line you know these there are different things in the world and we don't have to just make everything seem to be the same thing uh and it you know we should be right into the appropriate level um of complexity and that's that's the the thing most people don't get enterprises are really complex software is not complex but when enterprises make software they make it really complex because they bring all their crap with them and then all the crap that they bring 
stops it being software. It's, it's now 1% a software problem and 99% a people problem because we bring all the enterprise luggage with us. The, uh, sorry, I've just thought of something else with, with, with the customer that just, uh, so around about one of, one of our customers, um, and I think this, you know, when we talk about enterprise baggage, right? The, I always find that it's, um, uh, especially with the cloud, I think, uh, you know, you can't, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. It's actually quite a good motto. Um, I'm, I think in our business, we found that the younger bright, um, are much more geared up to, um, cloud waste thinking. And I remember, I remember when we were going through this cycle, um, and I was, I was liaising with a customer around about four or five years ago and um, they'd literally banned a whole bunch of applications which would allow us to stream and do big data, um, all all of the things that make us us. And so, you know, we spent we spent some time doing some work around with um, rebuilding things, spending more development time doing the same things in a much more complicated way using big compute. But one of the things, one of the things that they'd done inadvertently was, even if this is a thing, even if it's possible, was to ban streaming, um, because streaming was too expensive. And they'd gone through, they'd gone through this cycle of, um, of not using, um, Azure Stream Analytics, which was banned by default, um, which is actually an incredibly cheap resource. Um, for streaming, even if you scale it up to the maximum number of streaming units relatively. Um, and because, because the infrastructure and the, and the security team erroneously thought that, <laughs> thought that they should be testing streaming using ADF and then, and then started building like a whole bunch of ADF jobs that were running, I, I think like every minute, um, and did this ad infinitum across loads of data sets. Um, very, very quickly, they generated themselves a bill within tens of thousands of pounds and then said, yep, proof positive. <laughs> Streaming's too expensive for us. We're going to ban it. Um, so yeah, we've rectified that now, but it took about six months. But, uh, I mean, that, that stands to mind that a lot of the, a lot of the, the enterprise foundation, there's no knowledge there. There's a lot of there's a lot of encumbrance with people who've been used to doing things in a certain way. And they're not actually very good at learning new things either. And then they bring all of their biases and their assumptions into incredibly simple decisions that um, probably cost probably cost the enterprise millions, right? Because they can't consume documentation and don't go through like a, a normal trial experimental R and D process. I think that's the point you know, they don't go through a an R&D process. It's because the idea of experimentation, that is not what you've been rewarded for inside enterprises for the last 20 years. The whole focus of enterprises for the last 20 years has been running the IT at the lowest possible cost. You know, so everything's been focused on cost, ignoring the fact that, you know, again, in large enterprises, you know, they've wasted the 
the amount of savings that you can make on running a project efficiently is dwarfed by the amount of money you waste on projects that should never have been started in the first place. You could have a really inefficient project, but it's not going to be a tenth or a twentieth of what you waste on the stupid project. The project when everybody in the project team at the start of the project, all the techie people are sitting here looking at each other going, why the why are we doing this? This is moronic. This is, the, I mean, you for all of us sat in those meetings when somebody, the boss man walks out of the room and everybody looks at each other and just goes, yeah, all right. It's going to be another year of my life. I have no idea why we're doing this. I don't see the value of it. I could buy a commercial version of this or I could implement an open source version of this and it would be done next week. This is just mental, you know, um, which is almost worse than the, the, the Death March project, which is the project that you start and you go right from the day one, you know, 50% of the people in the room saying this cannot be done, achieved in the time and, and the resources that we have available, but we're going to do it anyway and work 60-hour weeks and burn everybody out. But, you know, yeah, it's just, it is just that, that, because we've been so focused on running things to the lowest possible cost, now we're in a world where all the compute that you could ever need, broadly speaking, is available at, you know, at the typing in the 16 digits and, a, and a, in, of a credit card. It, the mindset is, well, yeah, why can't we experiment? Why, why don't we just go and, you know, well, is this going to scale to a thousand servers? I don't know. Why don't we run a thousand servers for four hours and find out? Do you know what I mean? I don't have to interpolate from 10 servers or two servers and try and work it out. Why don't we just run a thousand for a few hours? It's going to cost us a hundred bucks. Do you know what I mean? I don't need them to be, I can run, you know, micro-sized instances. I more care about the number of them than the, the mass amount of packets that I'm hammering at it. Well, there's plenty of tools to hammer packets that I don't use to sell them. But, you know, it, it, it's just, it's just a different mindset, and that's the biggest problem that I've seen in organizations moving to the cloud is if you suddenly think that compute is cheap and ubiquitous and what's expensive is the time of the skilled people and what you're going to get them to build, then suddenly you'll, you know, and experimentation and finding this thing which is going to deliver real business value, then it's a completely different mindset. Sorry, I'm ranting now, but that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, absolutely does. And um, I think like that all the time, but um, if there's a, a tool out there that, that does the job, um, that we should use it in favour of, of writing our own, provided it fits into the category of kind of supporting tool and doesn't impinge on the core IP that we're trying to create for ourselves. Um, but yeah, what, you see a lot of, a lot of people, a lot of enterprises and a lot of our customers will spin up a supportive tool rather than using something that they could get off the shelf and, you know, and, and not engage with open source creators. You know, this is another big problem in our sector. Like you've got somebody who will produce free of charge effectively 
um, a very, very compelling tool, like a governance tool or framework or something like that, that you could just bring into your enterprise and then you could gain huge amounts of value from it and just be able to build on top of it. But rather than do they feel like that's not supported, there's no one to sue if it goes wrong. We have to sort of take the risk on ourselves and we're, we don't have any understanding or know-how about the tool ourselves. So it would take us too long to be able to build that know-how up. Um, so we may as well just write something ourselves that we then we then own, missing entirely the fact that there's probably some dude somewhere in a bedroom who's like literally a world expert in exactly the thing that you want to achieve could solve it for you in five minutes flat by just installing your his own open source framework and then we're more than happy to take some money off you for supporting it, for keeping it running, for helping you to hire someone who can run it, to train a team of folk, maybe run it as a, a, a team within your own org, right? Open source dudes out there, dudes and dudettes, um, they they are creating stuff like rapidly. The, the the most software created in the world is open source software, and it's an absolute explosion in creativity. But most people don't get paid for it. Almost nobody gets paid for it. If you do get paid, you get like a GitHub sponsorship for five or a month or something. And you have to then parade yourself around like a beauty show, like trying to get more people, trying to be an influencer on a social network, even though you're on but GitHub. A, but this is this is the, like, right? you know, Madness. is this a question you should start asking at your job interview is tell me. Tell me what developers you sponsor on GitHub and tell me yeah. what open source projects you fund or, you know, how many how many hours of effort, you know, do you have five people inside your business and all they do is contribute to open source projects? And you just, you know, yeah, I, I can't believe that organizations are not pumping money into good open source projects by funding these these great developers and enabling them to do this full time if that's their passion and that's what they want to do or enable them to enable them to hire somebody to write the documentation because let's be honest most open source documentation is crap you know it just it's based on an assumption it's written by somebody that knows the product inside and out and so there's so many assumptions in the documentation i think every open source project needs needs a good tech writer but you could easily make it so much better at what is to you a trivial cost. I mean, like, I don't know, what, what are salaries in the US for a, for a really good dev of 300K maybe, like at the top, you know, before you go into the silly, the, the silly thing? Like, that's nothing. I mean, what, what's, that's, that's a scrum team for a couple of months, you know, at, at enterprise scale. Even you could have a dev for the entire year, you know, <laughs> and he could be, you know, multitasking and making it better for everybody in the ecosystem. Right. I'm going to change um, a little bit because this, this thought popped into my mind. Uh, it's something I saw on YouTube about, oh, must be pushing a year. Um, you must have seen it. Um, it's uh, it's like this rag that somebody wrote called the Reorg rag. No, I haven't heard this one. Oh, please tell me. I wonder if we can. I wonder if we can play sound in this podcast. Um, ah, this is the chappy. Well, our company used to have these big silos. We had DevOps in two different rows. 
shows and they rarely communicate except to fight. So we said we're gonna build ourselves a dedicated DevOps team because everybody loves a go-between. We're gonna break these silos down, we're gonna do it right. We're gonna do a little reorg, yes siree. This time we're gonna fix this company, we're gonna have this DevOps thing in the bag. After one more round of the reorg rag. team started hot as heck, but they soon became kind of a bottleneck, and instead of two silos, now we had three. So we said we're gonna make dead do their own ops now, it's all in the cloud, they can figure out how, and we believe the term for this is SRE. We're gonna do another reorg, yes siree, this time we're gonna fix this company, we're gonna storm the silos and capture the flag, after one more round of the reorg rack. Well, it turns out ops is incredibly tough, and our devs soon said they'd had enough, so we brought back ops, but now they needed more. They said you're gonna need a platform team to guard and guide, and the DBAs wouldn't come along for the ride. We had silos everywhere, they were all at war. So here's where we're at. I'm on the tooling team, which is owned by Dev, but functionally it rolls up under this new cloud COE, which was recently spun out of Corp IT with a dotted line in the SRE. And some of those folks still report to me. I think technically I'm my own VP. Genius. <laughs> yeah. I had not I had not seen that. That is <laughs> that is so good. Yeah. That is so, so good. And so it, true. So I mean does that illustrate how look just from just from a DevOps angle, right? How how the bloat has happened in your in your business. Yeah, one hundred percent. I mean I think as I think you said it earlier, Andy. You know, it's it's one percent tech and ninety nine percent people, and and you know, it's funny because DevOps was supposed to be. I guess you know I've been out of the industry for you know out of the space for six months now. I've had the time to look back, and I I think if there's one thing that I would say that DevOps has really brought to the fore in a way that I don't think it did before or the, the technology had before was the importance of the team. And, and I know it's 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 in the, the Agile Manifesto, but the the importance of team, team dynamics, team psychology, psychological safety, all of the Project Oxygen, Project Aristotle stuff that Google did, all of the team topologies that Matt and Manuel did, like, I think that there's a much more acceptance that software development is a human-centered activity and a team-centered activity and a group activity in a way that I think was diminished in a mechanistic view of IT that I think had dominated previously. But I still don't think that, that, that DevOps has really been successful in breaking the back of that uh, to 
really change the mechanistic view inside these large organizations because large organizations still want to run their IT at the lowest possible cost. And they don't realize that running your IT at the lowest possible cost will make you go out of business. End of. Because it is such a source of innovation and such a source of competitive advantage that if you get your IT wrong, it doesn't matter how good your strategy is. It doesn't matter how good the people are. It doesn't matter how good, how well you're funded or how amazing the product is. If you get the IT bit wrong, it will fail. You cannot release a product or a service without having an IT related component to it. You know, I have a very nice robot vacuum cleaner and it works really, really well. But the app on the phone is crap. And there are a lot of people that have gone away from using that robot because the app on the phone was crap. And it just, yeah, as long as we're IT people are seen as replaceable economic units, then the bean counter view of IT will continue to hold sway. And the organizations that will do really, really well are the organizations that understand that software development and operations and running IT as a whole is a human-centered activity that is best viewed through a human-centered lens, not a cost-centered lens. So that makes, you know, that's... <laughs> That's 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 that, that, that's the core of my rant, I think. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, it's very good. That I think we've mentioned in, on previous podcasts how it, it's funny how IT has become a cost center uh, when it represents the pinnacle of human innovation. Really, we, we carry around these little supercomputers in our pockets that our grandparents wouldn't have the foggiest clue as to what they were, and we have instant access to all information around the world that we need to do our jobs and we can reach out to our colleagues no matter where we are. And uh, the department of the company is that, that looks after that is just seen as a massive overhead burden and cost, despite the fact it's fundamentally changed every part of every business over the last two decades. Uh, it's really funny how it, it's just been siloed into the, the basement with the nerds, right? <laughs> There's a lot of that going on, and it's just so wrong. But it's because, you know, because IT was historically seen as capital intensive, and it was all about the ROI on the capital that you were deploying. And now we're in a world where you can have all the compute you can consume, you know, there's a few edge cases <clears throat> for people, organisations that might not be true, but for most organisations, all the compute. So now it's about, well, what am I going to do with it? You know, how do I use it flexibly? How do I innovate with it? How do I experiment with it without spinning up massive projects that take forever to come back with an answer on whether this is a good idea? And the great companies are innovating. The great companies are leveraging open source both to build their applications, but they're also you know, leveraging the open source community to help them build their applications. I mean, HashiCorp would not have got anywhere near where it is without having a great relationship with the open source community where other people are building part of the product for them because I want this feature, so I will, you know, and you're very open to external contributions to your products, and so I'll just build it and give it to you and you'll give it, and then everybody's happy. But yeah, if if you keep thinking at it of IT is the thing I've got to run at the lowest possible cost. I mean, you know, there's a joke about marketing 
but 50% of marketing spend is wasted. I just can't tell you which is which 50%. So you'll spend hundreds of millions of dollars on an activity that you cannot measure the return on investment on effectively. And then you'll nickel and dime on your IT that if it fails, your entire business goes down. I mean, just look at, you know, BT a few years ago when their data center went down. Their, that data center went down for several days, cost them hundreds of millions. Or the Lloyd TSB migration debacle, hundreds of millions, you know, to, to, to fix that massive reputational damage. Um, yeah. It's, 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 it's insane that that mindset still holds sway in many organizations. But I think one thing that made me, you made me think of was also around the productivity. And this kind of relates to the cloud cull thing. And I'm, I'm going to mention probably it's probably going to be your favorite, um, your favorite uh, acronym, AI. I don't think we can get through a podcast talking about employee productivity and cloud culls without talking about AI. But I had a concrete example of this. I'm volunteering for a charity. Um, somebody had an Excel manipulation problem that they couldn't solve. And I'm going, oh, well, it, it, you could pretty easily record a macro to do that. And then you'd have to play with it a little bit to get it to loop and it'll do with what you want. But I didn't have time to do it. And I thought, oh, why don't I go over to ChatGPT? And I went over to ChatGPT and I described the spreadsheet and the data and the format and what I wanted and said, write me an Excel macro to do this for you. And it wrote an Excel macro and it worked first time. And like it was like an insane productivity hack, because even if it hadn't worked first time, uh, you know, I could read enough of it to understand, yeah, this is this is pretty much what I want it to do. And to change it would not be to modify it a little bit would not be too hard. And I keep coming back to I do think that the part of the great cloud cull that's out going on at the moment is partly driven by this wave of AI because it's almost like if it's a project that is not to do with AI, can it, you know, because AI is so hot in every organization, in every industry. If it's not related to AI, if it's not to do with deploying AI, if it's not to do with integrating AI, then, you know, it, it's going to have a lower return on investment. So, so can it, you know, we can spend that money on AI. But I do think there is also a, a productivity thing coming around software development that if you don't know how to leverage AI to make you a more productive developer, then you need to learn really quickly. So I, sorry, I have to say this, but for, for two, for two people here, like you and Andy that are on the forefront of the business of, uh, of cloud, um, it just, the fact, the fact that you both actually spent time asking chat GPT to, uh, to write some VBA for you, which I haven't done just yet, <laughs> right, is remarkable to me. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. it's like, you know, the, the last time I wrote VBA was probably 12, 15 years ago, you know, when I wrote it, you know, uh, uh, you know, more regularly. And it really was a case of, I didn't have time. Do you know what I mean? And it was like, Oh, I'm going to have to go back and, and, you know, and I'm going to have to read the documentation. I'm going to have to find some snippets and, oh, I can't remember how, you know, how do you do that relative referencing thing again? Oh, oh I can't remember. And, you know, and, and how do I manipulate the selection and how do I tell when it's done? Oh, I can't remember. 
And it was like, no. And I checked it, and it gave me an answer. And then once I read the answer, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, now I remember. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, this looks okay. Sent it off to the person, and they ran it. It was fine. But, yeah, he's <laughs> like, how much can you keep how much can you keep in your brain and how much can I outsource to the exo brain? And if the exo brain gets me 90% of the way there, that's insane. Yeah. Yeah. We're definitely seeing that, you know, like going back recent history, things like staff overflow, Mm -hmm. uh, you don't, you don't have to remember approaches to things or bug fixes for things or workarounds for things uh, because you can just search for them and, and go and go and find somebody else has gone through the same pain and you can take skip straight to the outcome. And, you know, that skipping straight to the outcome is this new revolution that's happening um, around how we engage with computers. And I don't think anyone really fully realizes yet that what we've been doing with user interfaces for mobile apps and web apps and things like that, they're, they're at risk of dying. They're on their last legs right now. And the thing that's, going to disrupt them is skipping straight to the outcome and why why would i want to mess around with a expenses application which makes me enter pounds and pence in numbers and argues if i put a space at the end of it and doesn't let me put in a um a pound sign in the front of it and so i have to mess around with that and it gets annoyed by how i put my phone number in and sometimes it gets annoyed because i can't remember my Cost code correctly and it wants me to put all these billing line items and I have to literally copy it off a receipt and do it. Why do I want that? What I, I, I'm making work there. It's hard, hard work. Um, that realistically has got very little value. It takes all of my time to do and gives me very little back. But now I can just write to a chatbot and say, Hey, I've got a picture of a receipt here. Could you put it as an expense for me? Click send. And it goes, yeah, here's what I found. And go through that, use a bit of computer vision to work out what the thing says. But more than that, once you've got the the structured document data out of there, it can understand it, contextualize it, and then interface with downstream systems and skip right to the output, which is that you've got an expense report and you'll get that money back in your paycheck at the end of the end of the month. That's that's the thing which happens, right, with an, with an AI in a textual input. And we don't we don't need regular expressions anymore. That's brilliant. Um, that makes me happy. <laughs> I can retire happy. Um, but <laughs> the whole point of an AI is just to get rid of regular expressions. That's it. Here, here first. Well, so I'm gonna I'm gonna say I think it's gonna be hilarious. I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna um, I haven't. Uh, it's been a lot. Like regular expressions is one of those things I relearn every couple of years. And it's like, the next time I need a regular expression, I'm just going to go to ChatGPT and ask them, you know, given this, given this string of, of information, you know, describe the, uh, describe the regular expression I need. But I mean, the, the approach, so I've been doing some startup mentoring through Microsoft startups and I've been working with a company called Emitzio, E-M-I-Z-I-O, Emitzio.com. They're in carbon accounting and there's all this new regulation saying you've got to do carbon accounting. You've got to track your carbon impact. So their approach was, you know, most of the other people require you to, like, download this spreadsheet and fill in all this data on the spreadsheet. And their, their view was, well, why don't you just drag in, you know, drag in your electricity bill and drag in your gas bill and drag in your, your car, you know, your fleet mileage data and, you know, drag in the, 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 the rent from, you know, from the, the building that you, that you occupy and the information from the landlord and, 
and we'll just, you know, the AI will just extract that all for you. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's the power of AI is to say, have, have, have all this big bunch of unstructured data and, you know, or, you you know, your annual report or whatever the information that, that, that has this stuff in. And, yeah, we could, we'll just contextualize it. We'll, we'll abstract the information for you. And, yeah, it, it, it's, yeah, I don't think that anybody's really yet thought about the, the impact of that on UI. I think every, I mean, I had one the other day, again, um, was talking to somebody from a company called Overmind making a new cool DevOps tool. And we were playing around with the information from AWS. We took the, the metadata from a whole bunch of AWS objects, you know, and items that were deployed. We stuck it into the, the chat window of, uh, of chat GPT. And then you could just ask it questions about, you know, what was the IP address of this, of this thing or was this feature flag to turn on or on or off? And it, it would tell you the right answer. She just understood you know, it just could contextualize the question you're asking and parse through the data and give you the right answer. Like he's asking questions in one window and I'm cross cross checking against AWS, uh, the information, the metadata in the other. And it was like, this thing is just, so that was a feature that you could add to the product in under a week that would completely transform. If you had 3,000 components that made up this whole virtual data center and you wanted to understand, show me all of the objects that have this metadata property turned on, and it would just, yeah, it would just tell you the answer. It's crazy. Well, there's a, a big, big change coming. Yeah. Um, I feel like I feel like with OpenAI, we do need to, uh, we do need to give it a, like a comical name, and I was thinking like, uh, or maybe you said this, Andy. I can't remember. Um, uh, like Ali G's, you know, when he talks about the FBI, we should be uh, <laughs> open AI. That should be our like our motif on this show. Yeah, <laughs> I am on. Maybe you've got maybe. to, you've got, you've, 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 you've got to sort of pronounce it with a long sort of Jamaican accent. You like, I am on. Yeah. Somebody, brilliant. Yeah, somebody rings. Somebody rings. Somebody emails Sasha Barry Cohen straight away. I want to. I want to see. I want to see a whole skit of Ali talking <laughs> well, about OpenAI. OpenAI. <laughs> OpenAI. Yeah, totally. Oh my god. Um, We're firing up well, dinner right now. <laughs> well, this has been absolutely brilliant. Um, you've been our first guest, Steve, and uh, so far you've been the best. Hey. <laughs> um but listen thanks for taking the time to come onto the show um and uh we'd love to have you again maybe we'll maybe we'll do our own skit with open ai and uh invite um uh, a few people to talk about their experiences just like andy's experience with uh open ai cheating on hangman consistently oh, yeah. yeah it's a real cheat uh, the only way to win is not to play would you like a nice <laughs> <game>? <laughs> Nice reference. I love like it. it. Yeah, thank I you. love it. All right, guys. So thank you very much. Yeah, always welcome to come back. I think uh, I think there's so many there's so many topics that we can talk about. I think there's something I'm really interested in tech is that people we talked about we're talking about people and we're talking about teams and we're talking about psychology, but we're also talking about leadership and we're talking about team dynamics. We're talking about organizational behavior, stuff that IT people weren't talking about ten years ago. You know, and for getting people to understand 
all of this stuff impacts you you know why you get made redundant or not or why your project gets canned or not or you know what ai is going to do to your job or not i think it's really important that we understand and we help contextualize this bigger picture for everybody it's really good well thanks steve thanks sandy 